Hey there, welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, and you know I'm here serving up your daily dose of death. This week, we're back to good old-fashioned murder, featuring fast food hamburgers. Now, if you're a seasoned, no pun intended, (laughs) true crime enthusiast, you're probably thinking of the Burger Chef murders, but today's story is actually about the Wendy's Massacre. Before we start, I just wanted to say thank you so much to all of you who listen and support the podcast. We've officially passed a thousand downloads and we have listeners from all over. I was really excited to see that we have listeners from Australia, the UK, France, Belgium, among other places outside of just the United States. I really love and appreciate every single one of you and I'm so honored that we can take a candid look at death together. Now, I do have a missing Indigenous woman I'm going to tell you about today, but there's not much information about her available, so I do apologize for that. According to NamUs, which is the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, Anna Jean Curley was 36 years old when she was last seen leaving her residence in Cayenta, Arizona, on the morning of December 18, 1998. She was never seen or heard from again. There are a few details available in her case, and Anna remains missing. Anna was between 5'4 and 5'5, and she weighed 135 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had black, shoulder-length hair, brown eyes, and a medium frame. Today, she'd be around 60 years old. Her NamUs missing persons ID is 83936. If you have any information regarding the disappearance or whereabouts of Anna Jean Curley, please contact the Navajo Nation Police Department at 928 697-5600. The link to Anna's NamUs page along with all of the sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. After the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. On November 15, 1969, Dave Thomas opened his very first Wendy's restaurant in Columbus, Ohio at 257 East Broad Street. In no time, the quick service chain became known for its square beef patties made from fresh beef and iconic frosty desserts. In November of 1970, Wendy's introduced the first modern drive-through to the world, what Dave Thomas coined the pickup window. This innovation was so revolutionary that customers needed instructions on how to talk through the speaker to place an order. Originally called the drive-in window, Dave wanted to change the name from something that could attract cruisers and joyriders. Wendy's nutrition policy was expanding, and so was the menu. The grilled chicken sandwich made its first appearance in July 1990 as a lighter, lower-calorie offering for customers seeking a non-fried chicken protein option. The U.S. Postal Service released a stamp to celebrate the joys of adoption, to raise awareness about the cause, and to thank those who had opened their homes to adopt children in foster care. Wendy's founder, Dave Thomas, was a participant in the official stamp dedication ceremony in May of 2000, where our story begins. 
Flushing in Queens, New York is less than 12 miles away from Manhattan by car. An 18-year-old boy named Jaquan Johnson worked in Flushing, and on May 24, 2000, he made his way down the bustling streets of New York like he would any other day. Jaquan usually used his CD player on his walk to work, and on this day, he was bumping big puns it's so hard in his headphones. As he opened the door to the Wendy's on 40th and Main Street, he took off his headphones and prepared himself for another regular day at work. Upon walking inside, Jaquan was met by 27-year-old Gene August, his manager there at Wendy's. Jaquan apologized for being late, joking that the DMV was crazy. Gene chuckled. After all, Jaquan was just a kid. He told him he was just glad he made it at all and told him to change into uniform and hop on the grill. Jaquan obliged without hesitation. As he made his way to the back of the restaurant, he greeted the 22-year-old cashier, Anita Smith. 44-year-old Ramon Nazario was doing food prep while talking to Ali Abidat, 40, who was cleaning the counters. Ali was explaining why he comes in seven days a week. He worked as much as he could because he sent money to his wife and two teenage children in Pakistan. Ramon listened intently as he finished prepping the ingredients for the next day. He told Ali that he almost didn't come to work today. Ali asked if Ramon was feeling okay, and he told him that he wasn't sick or anything, he just had a bad feeling sitting in the pit of his gut. Like Ali, Ramon also worked more than the typical 40-hour week, but it was exhausting to work 6-12 hour shifts every week, so Ramon was in the process of applying for a job at a Sheraton hotel that would pay him more. As Ali and Ramon worked, Killing Me Softly with his song played over the intercom. Anita took an order from a girl named Stacy, who congratulated her on her acceptance to York College. This is an especially bright time in Anita's life. She'd be attending York College to earn her degree in special education, and she was also engaged. After whipping up an old-fashioned quarter-pound combo, 23-year-old Patrick Castro brought a tray with the food and a drink cup to where Stacy sat. Now dressed in his Wendy's uniform, Jaquan made his way to the grill where Patrick and 19-year-old Jeremy Mealy stood. Jeremy told Jaquan about the brochure he had for him. The Navy could be Jaquan's ticket out of Queens. Jeremy had dreams of joining the Navy as well. He recounted to Jaquan his desire to marry his girlfriend after basic training and then become an auto mechanic after being honorably discharged. Jaquan asked Patrick about his future plans as he tossed patties onto the griddle. Patrick swept pensively, then paused. He wanted to attend university and perhaps move back to his home country of Ecuador to help his family for a spell, before returning to the U.S. to start his own business. Satisfied with his own answer, Patrick continued sweeping. The cadence of the back of house continued on. As Patrick swept, Jaquan dropped a basket of fries into sizzling hot oil. Jeremy wrapped up a burger and grabbed some fries, putting them in a paper bag before handing it off to a customer. Gene's key jangled as he made his way to the back and asked how things were going. Since it wasn't too busy, it was time for a trash run. Patrick volunteered, and as he made his way up front, Anita handed change to a customer named Charles. As he pocketed the coins, he asked Anita if she was the only woman working there that night. Since Ramon's sister had the night off, it was only Anita. At the time, she was engaged to a refrigerator repairman named Sheldon Ferguson. Anita wasn't the only one who was engaged. Gene was engaged to a woman named Linda Pardo. When Linda walked in, Gene excused himself to grab a bouquet of roses he had gotten earlier. He presented them to Linda, and the couple headed outside on Gene's break. 
Gene had big plans for his future with Linda. He was helplessly in love with her, and he counted down the days until his wedding the following spring. He was attached to Flatbush, Brooklyn, but for Linda, he was willing to move to any neighborhood where he could buy her house with a pool in the backyard. They both wanted a big family, and with Gene making his way up the corporate ladder, their dreams were finally within reach. While the Wendy's crew worked in Flushing, across town, the E-train slowly approached its platform. Among the crowd that formed around the doors were 36-year-old John Taylor and 30-year-old Craig Godino. They sat in seats across from each other as the subway doors closed and the train accelerated out of the station. John and Craig used to work at a clothing store in Queens as security guards. They both had jail time under their belts, and because of their record, their job opportunities were limited. The men were tired of living paycheck to paycheck, but their contempt towards their current situation wasn't solely due to their lackluster finances. The men were so jaded that even hearing other people speak of their aspirations made them sick to their stomachs. Before his job as a security guard, John worked as the assistant manager at the Wendy's on 40th and Main in Flushing. A few weeks before their ride on the E train, as they sat in the clothing store break room as security guards, John was struck with inspiration. He leaned in close to Craig, peering over his shoulder to make sure that no one was eavesdropping. John admitted to Craig that he had robbed fast food joints before. He recounted that most of the managers are willing to give up money to avoid any casualties, and there was merit in this claim. Most, if not all, restaurants and stores train their employees to give up money and goods to avoid getting hurt. All the men had to do was bring a gun to scare the employees at Wendy's so they could hand over the cash. Craig confessed that he'd never had to use a gun before, but John reassured him that if Craig followed his instructions, he wouldn't have to. Craig asked if John wanted to hold up the Wendy's he used to work at in order to get back at his old boss, Gene August, and he did. John wanted to make Gene pay for firing him from the only good job he had. But the problem was that at least two other employees knew John's face, which made this more personal than his previous hits. That's why, as he justified to Craig, he needed him there. Since Craig needed the money, he agreed. They planned on robbing the Wendy's on Wednesday, May 24th, right at closing time. As the crew at Wendy's continued their shift on that day, they got their usual variety of customers. Three pretty girls came in and Jaquan invited them to his family barbecue on Memorial Day. A man came in and asked Anita for a cheeseburger without meat, which resulted in her calling over a manager as this man alleged that he's never had a problem with his order at other Wendy's. It was a fairly average day working in food service. Gene approached Anita and told her to start counting her till in 15 minutes or so. He wanted her out of the door at exactly 11 p.m., since he knew her fiancé Sheldon would be worried. Anita said that she could actually stay past closing in order to help them clean as long as she got a ride home. Gene thanked her for her help and allowed her to call Sheldon to let him know that she would be home late. John and Craig arrived at the subway station on Main Street, and after they exited the train, they took the stairs up to 40th and Main. A few stragglers remained at the Wendy's, but as they left, Gene thanked them for stopping by. John made his way through the doors and stared at Gene until he caught his eye. As Craig entered the doors, he stopped the person behind him from following him in, telling him that the restaurant was closed. John placed an order with Anita and reminisced about hiring her the year prior. Then Craig placed his order. 
Patrick continued sweeping, Ali began mopping, and Jaquan put a fresh pair of gloves on and threw some patties onto the grill. Jaquan handed the food to John, telling him that since he knew his boss, Gene, he made him a double instead of a single. When John and Craig got their food, they sat at separate tables close by. A truck driver sitting nearby noticed John's fanny pack. Unsettled by the bulky bag, the truck driver finished his meal and left. Then, John and Craig simultaneously left their tables to go to the men's and women's bathroom, respectively. Gene handed Jaquan his keys and told him to lock the doors when the final customers left. Patrick and Ali made their final rounds of sweeping and mopping while Anita grabbed a bag for her till. Jaquan placed chairs on tables as John exited the bathroom. He listened in as Jaquan freestyled a few bars and his co-workers applauded. Craig exited shortly after and when John tapped the fanny pack, he nodded in response. Craig praised Jaquan's freestyle skills and asked him who some of his favorite rappers were. Since he was a New York boy through and through, he said Big Pun, Wu-Tang Clan, and Nas. John asked where he could find Gene, but before Anita could respond, he made his way downstairs to his office. When the store speakerphone rang, Jaquan excused himself from Craig to answer it. Gene announced, Attention all employees, please come downstairs. We're having a staff meeting. Thank you. Ramon remarked that the message was odd, as they had never had a staff meeting after hours before. Ramon, Anita, Jeremy, Ali, Patrick, and Jaquan hesitantly made their way downstairs. As the crew descended, Craig grabbed a pair of black gloves he had stowed in his jacket pocket. As he trailed behind the employees, he put the gloves on. Jaquan was the first to enter the office, and he approached with a smile. It slowly disintegrated as he saw the safes in Jean's office were opened and money was laid out on the table. Jean stood at his desk with a frozen look of terror. Jaquan recoiled as he felt the cold barrel of a 380 semi-automatic being pressed into his skull. When the rest of the crew saw Jaquan with a gun to his head, they tried turning around and heading back upstairs, but Craig blocked the way. Five minutes earlier, it was Jean who had the 380 pointed at his head. John demanded all of the money in the store, and Jean obliged. As he emptied the safes, Jean pleaded that John not hurt anyone. John said that he would need to tape everyone up just to be sure. In the present, Craig dutifully duct-taped the hands, mouths, and eyes of Ali, Jaquan, Jeremy, Jean, Anita, Patrick, and Ramon. Craig made sure that he taped their hands together behind their backs to further restrict their movement. Gene began wheezing as he struggled to free himself from the bindings. John heard the labored breathing and asked what was going on. With his hands partially free, Gene removed the tape from his mouth and gasped that he couldn't breathe because of his asthma. John said he didn't want to hear about his asthma and that tonight he wasn't getting any special treatment. At John's signal, Craig punched Gene. He took a few blows before collapsing on his side. Craig stomped on Gene for good measure. Craig retaped Gene's hands and mouth, and John ordered the rest of the crew on their knees. Craig then grabbed a handful of plastic bags and placed them around the crew's heads. Jaquan kneeled quietly as the tape around his right eye lowered. John fiddled with the semi-automatic as he told Gene it would bring him pleasure to see him be the first to go. He brought the 380 to Gene's head and ripped a tape off of his mouth so he could speak his last words. Gene coughed and wheezed as John remarked on the irony that now Gene's life was in his hands. John told him that he never liked him. 
John hated that he was chastised for his tardiness and his appearance, then asked Jean why he told him he looked like an unmade bed. Jean wheezed, stuttering to get out of the words, because it's true. It was no bother to John now. He replaced the duct tape on Jean's mouth and the plastic bag over his head. With a smile, he squeezed the trigger. The inside of the plastic bag spattered with blood from Jean's head. His body hit the ground with a thud, and Anita screamed. Twice she cried out. What happened? This irritated Craig, and he told John he couldn't go on if she kept screaming. John pointed the gun to Anita's head and told her that her screaming was making Craig nervous, which is something she didn't want to do. She sobbed as Craig shouted to make her stop screaming. She was supposed to be going home to Sheldon that night. She wasn't even supposed to be there that late. As the realization sunk in, she continued to scream. Without hesitation, John shot the gun aimed at Anita's head. After the gut-wrenching spatter of her blood hitting the plastic bag around her head, Jaquan heard Anita's body as it dropped. Now Jeremy had the gun at his head, and he prayed as the bullet from the semi-automatic penetrated his skull. John handed the gun to Craig and told him to finish it off. Craig was reluctant to grab the gun, and when John noticed this hesitation, he told Craig he had two choices. Craig could either finish off the rest of the crew, or John would finish off the rest of the crew and kill Craig too. Craig made his way over to Ramon and squeezed the trigger. John congratulated Craig and told him to finish off the last three employees so they could take the money and leave. Craig felt comfortable with the gun now and decided that Patrick was the next to die. Ali was after, and his body fell onto Patrick's knees. Jaquan was the last man standing, and he called out to the Lord to save him as the 380 went off into his head. There the Wendy's crew was, sprawled across the floor of the walk-in freezer, blood covering the inside of the bags around their heads. John and Craig made their way back into the office and grabbed the $2,400 they got from the safes. Their every move in the office was caught on camera, but for now, they had just gotten away with multiple murder and robbery. They left the office, and Craig looked back at the freezer for a moment before following John up the stairs. Twenty minutes had passed in the chill of the freezer. The bodies of the Wendy's crew scattered among boxes of ingredients. Patrick, still bound, raised his head. After he broke free of the tape, he tore the plastic from around his head and removed the tape from his mouth. He looked around the freezer in horror and asked, Is everybody okay? The freezer remained silent. Patrick gathered his bearings. He touched the blood that covered his face and noticed that it had dripped onto the floor. In his daze, he realized there was a heavy weight on his legs. Ali was still laying across him. Patrick crawled out from underneath Ali, but when he heard a noise, he quickly placed the bag over his head again and hid under his co-worker's body. It might have been John or Craig doubling back to make sure they got the job done. But to Patrick's surprise, it was neither of the attackers. It was Jaquan, and he was gasping for breath. Patrick writhed as he freed himself from Ali's dead weight again and removed the plastic bag on Jaquan's head. He removed the rest of the duct tape and Jaquan spit. Blood and saliva hit the floor, and the sound of a bullet spinning on the ground before stopping echoed in the silence of the freezer. Patrick carried Jaquan out of the freezer on his shoulders. He peered up the staircase to ensure no one was coming down, then hurriedly made his way into Jean's office. He propped Jaquan on a chair before he called 911, and before the police arrived, Jaquan lost consciousness. 
When Jaquan stirred moments later, Patrick helped him off the chair and up the staircase. Patrick told Jaquan about his Theo Victor from Ecuador. Theo Victor had a heart attack at 52 years old, and he was never really in the best of health. Doctors couldn't comprehend how he survived a massive heart attack at that age when he had a few previously. Patrick told Jaquan that he reminded him of his uncle because, like Theo Victor, Jaquan refused to die. Patrick said to him that he is a lion. Eres un león. Patrick sat Jaquan down when they reached the top of the stairs. They could finally hear the distant sound of sirens and a wave of relief washed over them. Patrick unlocked the door so the NYPD could enter. Around 6.30 a.m., Jaquan's mother, Jaretta, received a call during her shift at Love, Peace, and Joy Daycare Center. When she picked up the phone, she realized it was her sister, Valerie. But Valerie never called this early, and Jaretta felt that something was wrong in the pit of her stomach. Valerie asked Jaretta if she was seated, and at that moment, anxiety coursed through her veins. What could have happened that would warrant a call this early? Valerie relayed the news that Jaquan had been shot. Jaretta paused before her rapid-fire questions. When? How? Where at? Jaretta dropped to the floor and wailed. The only things she knew were that five people were shot and killed at Jaquan's job and that he himself suffered a gunshot wound to the head. Jaretta had four children, one daughter and three sons. Jaquan was the second youngest, and his mother loved him and his siblings fiercely. Jaquan's father had passed away when the kids were little, so Jaretta took on the task of being a single mother in a dangerous area. Without any other choices available, Jaretta was forced to raise her children in a gang-banging, drug-infested, and crime-ridden area of far Rockaway, Queens. Back in the 90s and at the time of the massacre, the streets were riddled with gun violence. Drive-by shootings were a regular occurrence, and Jaretta recalled that she often saw dead bodies when she looked out of the windows of her home. Sometimes, bodies were on the sidewalks or in cars with bullets in them. Sometimes, those bodies had needles stuck in their arms. In a poorly kept neighborhood with no city funding for after-school or work programs, citizens often found other means of filling their time and making money. Jaretta didn't want this lifestyle for any of her children, especially her sons. She didn't want them to become part of a statistic, so she made sure they went to school and respected their mother. Jamel, the second oldest, was a tough boy to wrangle in. He had started acting out in the year 1999, and Jaretta did her best to squash his behavior. Jaretta was working on obtaining her learner's permit that year, and although she failed the first time she took the test, she didn't let it deter her. She took the train to get to the DMV last time, but since then she had misplaced her metro card and needed to buy a new one at the check cashing place nearby. She and her daughter, Lakea, headed out the door to get a new card. Jamel left the apartment earlier. After Jaretta and Lakea left the check cashing place, they began their way over to the candy store for a treat. The sound of two gunshots pierced the air, and instinctively, the ladies ducked their heads down. As they rushed away from the gunshots, a person nearby said the body looked like Dewar. Jaretta was just grateful it wasn't her son. That is, until Lakea revealed to her mother that Dewar was Jamel's street name. Struck with horror and disbelief, Jaretta pushed her way through the crowd that had gathered around the fallen victim. The police tried to hold back Jaretta, but it was too late. She had already caught a glimpse of her son's body covered in blood. When Jamel arrived at the hospital, Jaretta discovered that Jamel had been shot in the leg, and it was a non-fatal wound. But the shock of the shooting was enough to shake her to her core. 
Jamel's close call was the last straw for Jaretta, and it didn't take long for her and the kids to pack up their apartment in the projects. This was no life for her children, and moving out of the projects meant that their chances of survival increased exponentially. Unfortunately, Jaretta's mother only had room for her in Lakea. The boys would have to stay somewhere else. Thankfully, Jaretta's sister invited the boys into her home, but she wasn't ecstatic at the idea of her family being separated. Jaquan's aunt Linda took great care of him. She'd even baked him a chocolate cake when he turned 18, barely two weeks prior to the shooting. Linda grew even closer with her nephew, even picking up on his nickname. His friends had nicknamed him Fluff because when he unbraided his cornrows, his hair fluffed up. Now this fluffy-haired boy was shot, the very fate his mother moved him out of the projects to avoid. Back in the early morning hours in 2000, Jaretta thought back on how she already almost lost one of her sons. The news of Jaquan being shot was just too much to handle. Once again, however, her child survived. The bullet that pierced his skull entered through the back of his head and exited the front, specifically into his mouth, which allowed him to spit the bullet out. When Suffolk County Police arrested John, he had had some of the stolen money, the security footage, and the 380 in his possession. When Craig was arrested, he had the black gloves in his pocket. During Jaquan's recovery in the hospital, an anonymous caller threatened to finish off him and Patrick. Jaquan also attended therapy in order to cope with his anger, denial, and survivor's guilt. Survivor's guilt, sometimes referred to as survivor syndrome, refers to the psychological condition of someone who witnessed or was involved in a traumatic event that may have harmed co-workers or victims, but left the affected individual relatively unscathed. The affected individual, however, is impacted by the often crippling emotional scars that resulted from witnessing the traumatic event. Often, someone with survivor's guilt will question, why not me, or what should I have done differently? Survivor's guilt is often classified as a serious symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Jaquan's PTSD also manifested itself in violent night terrors. On January 22, 2001, Craig Godino pleaded guilty and was later sentenced to life in prison. The death penalty was off the table for Craig due to his intellectual disability. On November 19, 2002, John Taylor was convicted of murder and attempted murder. One week later, on November 26, the jury sentenced John Taylor to death. On October 23, 2007, the Court of Appeals of the State of New York, New York's highest court, vacated the death penalty portion of the verdict. The Queen's Prosecutor's Office fought unsuccessfully to have John Taylor's case declared an exception to a 2004 appeals court decision that found New York's death penalty law unconstitutional because of a flaw in its mandated instructions to the jury. On November 29, 2007, John was resentenced to life without parole for the five murders. As of 2007, he had been the only inmate on death row in New York. The Wendy's never reopened, and it eventually became a mini-mall, but no food is currently sold there. The new owner donated $18,000 to the Flushing Library for an after-school program in honor of the victims. The Wendy's Corporation planted a tree in memory of the victims at the Queen's Botanical Garden, and company founder Dave Thomas attended the ceremony. Despite the horrific tragedy that occurred in the Wendy's in Flushing, this case didn't get much news coverage. The restaurant was in a high-traffic area, and Wendy's is one of the U.S.'s most popular fast-food chains. So why haven't we heard of the Wendy's massacre? The answer is simple. 
The victims and the perpetrators were all people of color, with the exception of Jeremy. But what makes this any less important than other crimes that have gotten media attention? The Wendy's crew in Flushing was a melting pot of individuals who were chasing after their own slice of the American dream. They were hardworking people trying to make ends meet, something that most of us can relate to. Patrick Castro returned to Ecuador and then came back to the U.S. to earn a college degree. Jaquan Johnson had been in and out of trouble with the law, but has since stayed on the straight and narrow. The bullets fired in the Wendy's massacre shattered lives and dreams far beyond the basement of a Queens fast food restaurant. Jean Auguste came from Croix de Bouquet, Haiti in 1990 and fell in love with Brooklyn, so much so that his family wasn't sure whether to bury him there in New York or send his body on a final trip home. Instead of planning a funeral, they should have been planning a wedding. Jean used to bring Linda flowers every day. After the shooting, all she had left was a half a dozen fading red roses and the matching platinum wedding band she and Jean picked out. Jean Auguste's family called him Dee Dee. Of all the brothers, Dee Dee was the funniest. His brother Elson said he made people laugh and kept everything together. Ali Ibadat lived alone in a tiny windowless basement cubicle on Woodward Avenue in Ridgewood, Queens. He shared a bathroom and a small kitchen with two other men. One of them, Abdul Wahid, 43, said that during the three years he knew Ali, he slaved away like an animal seven days a week at fast food restaurants. He had no family in the U.S. and no friends came to see him. His wife and two teenage children lived in Pakistan. For the three years he had been living with his roommates, they recalled that he worked every single day and they never saw him sitting down. They never even saw him take a vacation. Wendy's was part of Anita Smith's college plan, to work her way through school at York College in Queens, where she was to begin classes in September. The 23-year-old Springfield Gardens high school graduate wanted to become a social worker and help autistic children. Her mother said that she was the best person in the world and that she was always doing good for somebody. In addition to her job at Wendy's, Anita spent lots of time working at Quality Services for the Autism Community, a nonprofit organization. The organization named a scholarship after her for students pursuing careers in the field of developmental disabilities. Ramon Nazario had moved to Queens from his homeland of Puerto Rico two years before his death. He and his wife, Margarita, and their three-year-old son, Ramon Jr., lived with his mother, her husband, and his 94-year-old grandfather. Ramon liked to barbecue and dance and also practiced martial arts in his spare time. Jeremy Mealy grew up in Neptune, New Jersey, graduated from high school, and moved to Queens where he lived with his fiancée. He was a damn good kid, said his grandmother, Janet Hall. Before he worked at Wendy's, he was an employee at Glendola Mobile at the Garden State Parkway Wall rest stop. He was a member of Lighthouse Deliverance Church, and he was a 1999 graduate of Neptune High School, where he was active in the ROTC program. His mother, Jacqueline, started a scholarship at Neptune High School in his honor. Born in Lakewood, he was a lifelong resident of New Jersey, where he's buried. The Wendy's massacre is just one of many examples of a normal day at work turning deadly, but this crime had a unique viciousness to it. As Queens District Attorney Richard Brown stated, quote, It was brutal and it was callous. It was cruel and it was inhuman. It was depraved. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for next week's Story from the Mortuary.